At first glance, commonalities between an Iowa women's prison, a teen sex education office, an alternative school in neutral gang territory, an orphanage in Rwanda, and Stanford University are difficult to identify. But there are actually two things all of these locations have in common, social emotional learning and today's guest, Laura Schmidt. Welcome to Fund for Teachers, the podcast. I'm Carrie Caton, and the goal of each episode is to elevate teachers as the inspiring architects of their careers, classrooms, and school communities. Today, we visit with Laura Schmidt, a teacher on special assignment with the San Francisco Unified School District. She is currently the co-director of its Advancement via Individual Determination program, serving first-generation college students and also an induction coach working with new teachers. Prior to this post, Laura earned a master's degree in education policy, organization, and leadership studies from the Stanford University Graduate School of Education, where she also lectured and worked as an assistant director of professional development. While in graduate school, Laura was a policy analyst intern for restorative justice initiatives at San Francisco Unified, where she also established a special education program at Leadership High School. Before any of that, however, Laura was a Fund for Teachers Fellow and designed a fellowship to investigate how administrators and teachers in Rwanda teach traumatized students coping skills through social-emotional learning, advisory programs, and service learning. My initial conversation with Laura was postponed due to the wildfires threatening San Francisco, so I was grateful for the opportunity to visit with her about her passion for social-emotional learning, students burdened with multiple childhood traumas, and the teachers who work alongside them. Let's start with how you became a teacher. What, what prompted you to become yeah. a teacher? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I was not an education major. I hadn't really thought about teaching. Um, I was a writing major and a sociology major, double major in college. And I went to school in, at Drake University in Iowa. And for my writing major, there was a culminating project. And the culminating project that I worked on with my professor is we ran a writing group for a group of women in a maximum security prison. And it changed my life. The women were just so strong and resilient. I had been through a lot. And the majority of them had at one point been in special education. And that was a real light bulb moment for me where I realized that your experience in school and the way that teachers can treat you and your ideas of whether or not you're smart or you're capable can really influence life trajectories. And so after that, I did AmeriCorps for a year working at Planned Parenthood, working with teens, doing comprehensive sexuality education, which was crazy. Um, and then I was like, you know, I, I think I want to be a teacher and I want to be a special ed teacher because I really want to interrupt the school to prison pipeline. That's how I got into it. And I really lucked out. I became a teacher in Oakland for my first four years and I had really incredible mentors and I worked at a really, really special school called Oakland Emiliana Zapata Street Academy. It's a high school where if students are struggling um, academically or maybe need to get out of a bad neighborhood situation, they can come to Street Academy and you can get your um, high school diploma, you can catch up on credits. And it was also in a sort of a neutral gang territory. And it was just a really incredible experience. I learned so much from the staff and students there. And I was there for four years, uh, getting my teaching credential. And then I moved to San Francisco Unified um, and I went to Leadership High School. 
So I was a district employee, but I was working at a charter school. Um, and charter schools traditionally don't always serve their special education students as well as district schools. But Leadership High School is a charter school that really wants to, to serve all students and has a social justice mission. So I was at Leadership High School for four years um, and had the opportunity to build a special education team. And so that's where you were when you applied for a Fund for Teachers yeah. scholarship. Okay. Yeah. So my whole time teaching, I've always been really into how do adults interact in respectful and thoughtful ways with students. And I think sometimes students with trauma who've experienced a lot of trauma in their lives might act in ways that adults perceive as being aggressive or shut down or uh, like non-compliant when in fact there's other things going on and it's not actually um, about not wanting to listen to the adult or not wanting to be at school. And so that was something that I saw a lot throughout my teaching career, both in Oakland and San Francisco. And I was really curious to see school models that were very focused on the whole child and focused specifically on students who've been through a lot of trauma and healing that trauma. How did you come upon the, the school with which you observed and where you volunteered in Rwanda? Yeah, so Agahozo Shalom Youth Village is in Rwanda. It's really a magical place. Um, and my coworker, Charlie Brooks, I'm gonna give her a shout out. She's getting actually her PhD in education right now at UC Santa Cruz. Um, she is the first one who told me about it. I was saying like, I'd heard wonderful things about Fun for Teachers and I knew what I wanted to study. I was like, what other country, I know other countries have dealt with trauma in a more systematic way than the United States. A place like Rwanda, when the, where there was a genocide that affected a majority of the population, really was dealing with how do you heal the after effects of trauma. And my coworker was like, you need to look up this school. I've heard incredible things about it. So I, I researched it and I was really struck by, while the school is funded um, primarily by Western money sources, all of the staff and the way that they designed the school really came from a local context the executive director, all the teachers, um, the house mothers, which I can get into more, how they have this whole wraparound model, are all Rwandan. And the program was designed very much from a Rwandan context. And I was really interested in, in, in seeing a place that really was a school that was trying to address trauma, but really from their local context. And the fact that the healing was built into the very fabric of not just the school, but the village and um, like the social interactions was something I was really interested in. And also it's a school that's very academic. It has a very academic focus and, but the academics come from a place of wanting to heal students and give students opportunities to really explore their interests, which I, I think is wonderful. Healing trauma and uh, rigor can go hand in hand. Not in American schools, it seems like. Is that a model that you see played out in the United States? I think it's something that, at least in San Francisco Unified School District, we're really working towards. And I think schools that have done it really well have really invested in project-based learning with a, like a social justice lens that really talk openly about what students have experienced and provide opportunities for them to do really rigorous, meaningful projects, as well as use culturally responsive teaching techniques to build a really strong classroom culture uh, where students feel listened to, they feel seen, they feel like they have a place in the community. 
And I think if you really use culturally responsive teaching strategies to build that community first, you really can have a lot of rigor and curiosity built into to that space. When you arrived, what, what, what struck you, I guess, first? The first thing that struck me is just how the school was really built with the whole child in mind. It, this school is for students who have been orphaned. From the aftermath of healing from the genocide, because things were really chaotic in Rwanda afterwards. But basically, students are assigned a house. It's a family. And in charge of the families is what they call the mother. And it's a woman who was usually a widow from the genocide who might have lost her children. And so she acts as a mother figure for eight to 12 girls through their entire experience. So it's a five-year program where basically you have to do an enrichment year before you start doing high school. So it's basically like a five-year program. And the enrichment year is really a year built for healing, but it's all in the same grade level. So that was sort of the first thing that struck me. And as part of my time there, I got assigned a family. So I would hang out every night there with the girls and they were super funny and like bright and witty and just like, it was just great to to learn from them and hear about their experiences. And like all people, all of the girls dealt with their trauma in very different ways. And I think something that's really beautiful about Agahosa Shalom is that There's a lot of different things that you can get involved in. There's a lot of chances for students to really show their leadership skills. They have like really amazing art programs. They have like, they had a recording studio. They had like traditional art and sewing and all of these wonderful electives alongside the traditional subject matter. And so it really allowed students to explore what they were interested in and that, and have that be a part of their healing. So much in U.S. schools, when we see a school that might be struggling with academics, we just pile more and more academics on. And we don't always allow them to have elective enrichment courses that allow them to feel like whole people. Could you see some commonalities with your own students? Yeah, I mean, you know, as a special education teacher, I, and and I um, worked in areas that have been like historically underserved by schools, but also by, by lots of things. You know, like I've worked in places that are in food deserts and uh, where, you know, my students really didn't have access to a grocery store. So they, they'd experienced a lot of trauma in lots of different ways, um, like mo- many of the students at Agahosa Shalom Youth Village. And I mean, I think the thing is, is like teenagers are like teenagers, no matter where you go around the world, <laughs> you know, I love teens. I think they're awesome and they're funny and shy and sassy and like, you know, exploring who they are. And I think what I really learned from Agahosa Shalom is that giving students really concrete, authentic opportunities to discover what they are excited about and interested in. And even if that is learning more about themselves, it really helps students heal and learn more about who they are. And also, I want to say, too, that some students really fell headlong into core content areas and were like becoming obsessed with math. You know, and I think when you give students a chance to explore what they want and to build authentic relationships with adults who care about them, that was the other thing that really struck me about the village is there were a lot of adults to provide support. So there were the mothers, there were sisters and brothers who were people who taught elective classes, who were assigned houses also to have deeper relationships with. Um, There were the teachers, there were social workers. And so there were a lot of adults who were invested in, in each student's success and healing and growth. 
But what that shows us is that using a lot of culturally responsive teaching techniques to build community first and build trust first, then allows you to go deeper with academics. The Akahoso Shalom Youth Village, where Laura volunteered and observed, was based on the communities that Israel built after the Holocaust to care for orphans' safety, security, and development. The school was started by one woman committed to the Jewish principle of making the world a better place when she realized that Rwanda had no systemic plan for the well-being of 1.2 million orphans resulting from the genocide. ASYV is built on the four pillars of parental wholeness, formal education, health and wellness, and life enrichment applied programs. Learn more at asyv.org. We're learning from Fund for Teachers fellow Laura Schmidt, who currently works with San Francisco Unified School District as a director of the Advancement via Individual Determination Program and also an induction coach for new teachers. After hearing about her start in the teaching profession and her fellowship in Rwanda, I wanted to know about how that fellowship informed the next chapters of her career and about the centrality of social-emotional learning in her trajectory from special education teacher to Stanford University and back to classrooms around the Bay Area. So then let's circle back. So then you finish your time in Rwanda and you come back, you go in, you went back into the classroom, right? Yeah. When I came back, I started teaching a new class. So when you run a special ed program, the majority of what you do is case manage students. So I had a pretty big caseload and I worked closely one-on-one with teachers. But this year I also was teaching a class for seniors who had IEPs, who were applying to colleges and trying to finish their culminating project and portfolio to graduate. Um, and it was a group of students I had worked with for four years and was very close to and felt very connected with. And I knew they were all really stressed. So I really, after my time um, in Rwanda, wanted to focus on supporting them academically with college applications and SATs and finishing our culminating project. But I also wanted to equally hold their social emotional health as being just as important as their academics. So we did a lot of community circles. I really gave them a lot of leeway in um, explaining to me what they felt like they needed. Even though we'd all known each other for four years, it's still important to, you know, communities are built, but they also need to be maintained. So I think a big thing that my time in Rwanda taught me was to not stop building community and making sure that it's strong. How soon after do you decide to change your trajectory a little bit? Yeah, so I actually, the year I got back, I applied to grad school. Um, So I had my teaching credential, but I didn't have my master's degree. And I really wanted to spend a year or two learning and sort of thinking about what I had experienced doing direct service. Um, And at that time, I was like incredibly interested in policy, especially policy around school discipline. At that time, 2015, 2016, we were just really starting to talk about racial disproportionality in um, discipline, but we hadn't really moved the needle as much. And I really wanted to study what it would take to, to create schools that 
you know, we're anti-racist, which wasn't really even a term then that I knew of. And I ended up going to Stanford. I got my master's in policy organization and leadership. We also did a project there. And the project that I did was basically looking at how a Barrier school district implemented restorative practices across the district and how they were implemented and how they were not implemented. When I went in there, I thought, you know, I had my time in the classroom and now I really want to be a policymaker and I want to tell states and schools what to do. But after my time at Stanford, um, especially I took this incredible class taught by David Labrie, who um, is not, I don't think, teaching it anymore, but he put his class online that anyone can access it. And it's called The History of School Reform. And it changed my thinking. Through that class and through my um, polls project, I really came to realize, came to realize again, that the only thing that really matters is what happens in a classroom between teachers and students. But it made me realize that like the place that I felt like I could be most impactful for me in the education space was working with teachers. So then I ended up getting hired by Stanford as the assistant director of professional development. And so I really worked with their existing professional development projects that they did for teachers in the field for a couple of years. But I just missed, I wasn't working very direct, like I wasn't working directly really with teachers and students. And I was like, that's where my heart is. So I, I got to go back there. And so I went back to the district. This is my second year back uh, and I'm a teacher on special assignment. So I work with the AVID program, which is achievement uh, via individual determination, which is a program for first generation college students. And I work as a teacher induction coach, which is rewarding work to, to work with new teachers on how to improve their teaching and develop their, their sort of teacher persona and ethics and all that stuff. So I'm really enjoying it. And I'm also getting my administrative credentials because eventually I see myself um, working with teachers as a school leader. Yeah, kind of a crazy trajectory in the last six years. <laughs> Is there a commonality that you see with the, with the new teachers with whom you work, a starting point that everyone is wanting more information about or how to improve in? Yeah, I mean, I think that question was different this time last year versus this time this year. I mean, I think, you know, this year we're not really trained to do things virtually. And it's, you know, one of those experiences where I'm coaching teachers on something I've frankly never done. Like I've never taught virtually during a pandemic with wildfires all around us. So, you know, I think for me, it's being really humble and being like, how is it going? Like, how can I be of any assistance? But I do think the first year for most teachers, the thing that's really hard is figuring out how to build relationships and be sort of the the teacher authority figure who also is supportive and cares about students. You have to figure out who are you as a teacher. So figuring out that balance, I think is something that a lot of first year teachers struggle with. I know I did and creating strong boundaries, but also understanding when it makes sense to be vulnerable, I think is also really important. Lara, what I'm hearing a common thread through what you experienced in Rwanda, what you experienced with your students, what you experienced with, with your teaching peers and these, and these new teachers, I keep hearing this authenticity. It seems in every realm, I'm hearing you say that success is, is hinged upon authenticity and even with ourselves. Yeah. When you say that one of the, the teachers need to learn who they are and learn who they are as a person. Mm -hmm. And I, I just think that's interesting because I don't think that authenticity is something that we automatically look to as a measure of success in what we're doing. 
But everything that you've talked about, that is the key ingredient, it seems to me. Definitely. You know, I think it's important for teachers to know who they are and also confront their biases proactively and think about what are ways that I might be hurting students and I don't know that I'm doing it, especially that's really important for white educators. And so they can be really authentic and know themselves in their relationships with students who are different than them. Are there other resources that you have found especially impactful in helping teachers discover yeah. kind of who they are? Zaretta Hammond's work on culturally responsive teaching is wonderful, and she really pushes people to understand how the brain works and how relationships are key to learning, and how do you sort of think about where your privileges and where your biases, biases are and how do you interrupt them? as well as that curriculum from David Labrie, just to learn about the history of school reform. Like what is the history of like how many times you tried to reform school and what works, what doesn't. And I also think going back to authenticity, it's also really important to build authentic learning experiences for students. And if you're asking students to do busy work or to do things that aren't meaningful to them, it's just not gonna be as impactful. So just like you have to be authentic about who you are, and your relationships with students in order so you can build authentic relationships with them where they feel like they are seen and known. You have to be really thoughtful about not only how you present curriculum, but how you ask students to show what they've learned. You know, we have to really get away from one size fits all assessments so students really have authentic ways to to show you that they're engaged with what they learn. When you create a school of your own and lead a school of your own, can you kind of give me the utopian... (laughs) cultural, academic cookbook? There's, yeah, it's like, what to choose? So my dream school would have a lot of social emotional learning, a lot of universal design for learning, and a lot of really authentic academic engagement on on projects that mean something. You know, we oftentimes view education as being a private good, as being something that, um, you know, students do so that they can succeed in life. But it's also a public good. You know, building strong students means that we'll have a strong society. As teachers and as school leaders, we have to view that as being just as important as serving individual students. You know, we have a a responsibility to build a strong democratic society filled with active, engaged citizens. So when I think about my ideal school, I I hope that a student would leave there feeling like they, they know themselves, they feel cared for, they have the, the skills they need to, do, to tackle projects and problems that they're interested in and that they're engaged in the world around them. I wanna to go to that school. I do too. We look forward to using this podcast to elevate more teachers as the inspiring architects of their careers, classrooms, and school communities. But you can learn from almost 9,000 Fund for Teachers fellows now by visiting fundforteachers.org slash blog. Or check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thank you, Fun for Teachers fellow Laura Schmidt, for sharing about her teaching trajectory centered around social-emotional learning. You can learn more about David Labory, the Stanford professor Laura mentioned, at davidlabory.com. That's D-A-V-I-D-L-A-B-A-R-E-E.com. I'm Carrie Caton. Thank you for joining us today at Fund for Teachers, the podcast. Until next time, keep learning.